0: Good morning, church. My name's Jess. So this morning we do have a few Bible readings. So you can see them up on the screen there. The first one is Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 to 8. And then we'll just move through the rest. So starting at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver and bronze... "'blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, "'goat hair, ram skins dyed red, "'and another type of durable leather, "'acacia wood, olive oil for the light, "'spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, "'and onyx stones and other gems "'to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. "'Then have them make a sanctuary for me, "'and I will dwell among them.' Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And then the second Bible reading is Exodus chapter 28. Is that? Oh, 29, sorry. Too many. And we're starting at 38, okay. When I find it. Okay. Starting at verse 38. This is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs, a year old. Offer one in the morning and the other at twilight. With the first lamb, offer a tenth of an ether of the finest flour mixed with a quarter of a hind of oil from pressed olives and a quarter of a hind of wine as a drink offering. Yep, keep going good. Sacrifice the other lamb at twilight with the same grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning a pleasing aroma, a food offering presented to the Lord. For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. There I will meet you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites and the place will be consecrated by my glory. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And then we're going to Hebrews chapter 8. Reading verses 1, starting at verse 1. So Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises.
1: Okay, good morning, everyone. I just take in now how wide the view is that I've got to turn my head around to see everybody. If you want, there is an outline um, for talk this morning um, on the Hub. If you want to connect to the Hub, you'll see the full outline, although I'll be revealing sections of it, hopefully, as I go. Since we had just a little bit of a glitch this morning, which we seem to have overcome now, which is good. Well, as you heard earlier from what uh, Naomi said, we deal today with a section of uh, six fairly long chapters in um, in Exodus, chapters 25 to 31, that really are so far from our experience as uh, Christians today, our experience of God and how we're to live for him, that we might be tempted simply to write them off. You know, it's one of those parts of scripture that are sort of quaint, And uh, pretty irrelevant for us, but I think that would be a grave mistake. In in these chapters, and also there's another five in chapters 35 to 40, which uh, Luke will deal with in a a couple of weeks. That you'll find repeat a lot of the material in this section as well. I think are some of the most important chapters in the Book of Exodus, if not really in the whole Old Testament. The sheer amount of space, you see, that the author devotes uh, to the theme of these chapters, it really is 13 chapters in all if you count 35 to 40 as well, ought to indicate to us how critical the author thinks these chapters are. For in these chapters we begin to see the beginnings of God's ultimate plan for humanity a plan for God to make for himself what I've called, as you can see in the heading there today, a meeting place for God with his people. Now, let me take a moment just to review where we're up to. God has brought the Israelites out of Egypt, as we've seen, in a mighty way. They crossed the Red Sea miraculously and in the process destroyed the Egyptian army. The Israelites have now journeyed to Mount Sinai, uh, where God has put before them His covenant law, and uh, and how they are to live as His people. So God has rescued them, saved them, um, given them the law, which is meant, which was always meant, of course, to be a blessing uh, for their life as God's people. But God has done all this for a greater purpose, and that purpose is so that He could dwell among His people. That is God's ultimate aim. To form a people he can meet with and dwell with forever. Remember when God first created Adam and Eve in Genesis 1-3 uh, to three? and uh, in chapter 3 verse 8 the relationship was described as God walking around in the cool of the garden with Adam and Eve. But their disobedience separated them from God and set humanity on a course of rebellion and separation that would lead God to form a plan, a recreation, you might say, or a new creation, where he might again dwell among his people, the people he created. That begins right here, friends. First of all, with the building of of the tabernacle. You might, if you uh, have got the Bible scriptures open, turn to that first reading we have in chapter 25, verses 1-8. to God requires various kinds of offerings from the people, all sorts of different materials. There are metals, gold, silver, bronze, types of yarn, animal skins, oils, stones and gems. Presumably, Um, these were among the things that they took from the Egyptians when they came out. If you remember the story, they were told that they could get anything they liked from the Egyptians, they'd give them to them. This is probably where all these things came from. And then we see the purpose of these um, offerings in verse 8. God says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle... And all its furnishings, exactly like the pattern, I will show you. And so from here through to the end of chapter 31, uh, we have very detailed instructions given by God using these materials for the building of the tabernacle. But its purpose is clear. So that God may dwell among and meet with his people. Now this is emphatically sort of uh, confirmed, if you like, by the alternate name that's given to the tab- tabernacle and that is the tent of meeting. This, this name first occurs in chapter 27 in verse 21 um, and then the tabernacle is referred to mostly in this name some 30 times in the rest of the book of Exodus. It's referred to as the tent of uh, of meeting. A place where God can dwell and meet with his people. And when you put all these instructions together, um, here are a couple of images of what it might, of what it looked like. First, internally, if you can uh, pick that up, I would have liked a laser thing to help you out here, but it's not strong enough. Um, we see the various elements. So uh, the purpley thing in the middle is the tabernacle and it has two areas. There's the holy place What is that on the left hand side here? Yeah. <laughs> holy place on the left um, where the Ark of the Covenant was that contained the, the uh, tablets of the law etc. And then there's what was called, sorry, the Holy of Holies and then what's called the Holy Place which the priests only were able to go into and um, There are various things there that you can see pointed to, an altar of incense, table of showbread, etc., lampstand. And then outside there was a big curtain that covered, that was um, what you called the courtyard, that was around the whole thing. And that was where you had the altar burnt offerings, where um, animals would be sacrificed, etc., and other things. And uh, the people could come into the courtyard, but they couldn't come into the tabernacle itself the holy place and the holy of holies. If you're looking from outside, this is what it might have looked like. Um, if you read through, you'll find that the outer perimeter had to be in white materials, hence why it's drawn like that. Uh, so it's just to give you an indication, if you read through, of its surrounds. Now, I just want to go back for a minute and just... Um, uh, you might have noticed that when I put up um, the tabernacle, I had the word temple uh, in brackets. That's because the temple was later built by King Solomon, was really just essentially a permanent copy of the tabernacle. This tabernacle, as you can see, um, was something that went with Israel. They're still in the wilderness, they're still heading to the promised land, they had to pack up their gear and move every now and then, and so the tabernacle needed to be packed up. And so it was mobile and went with them. But once they got into the Promised Land, of course, then they were settled. And then it ended up that they built a permanent fixture, the temple which was built by uh, King Solomon. But if you read about that, you'll find it was basically set in exactly the same pattern as the tabernacle, just bigger and more glorious in many ways because it could be permanent. So if we ask a question, if I just go back for a second and ask the question, um, why then all these various elements? God was very specific. It had to be exactly as he said. Moses had to build it exactly as he said. And why all these elements? Why did they have to be? Why did it have to be this way for God to dwell among them? Well, there's a big problem of course that we know about And that is the problem of how a holy God can dwell with humanity. Because it's the problem of human sin. How could God in all his purity, holiness and glory dwell with rebellious, sinful humanity? These arrangements that we see here remind us, you see, of the problem. While God's aim is to dwell with his people, the people at this stage can't enter the tabernacle. Rather, if you read through the chapters, you'll find that it's the priests who represent the people in the tabernacle. Chapter 29 deals with the consecration of the priests. That's why I had part of it read. Aaron and his sons are to be ordained as priests Only they can enter the holy place. The people can come to the courtyard with their sacrifices, but they give them to the priests who offer them as burnt offerings for to cover sins committed. The second reading um, from chapter 29, verses 44, 46 says this. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will sacrifice Aaron... Sorry, will consecrate, not sacrifice, consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. And that I am the Lord their God. Note again the purpose stated of God dwelling with his people, that they may know all that God had done for them. Now, having said all this, however, it's still a long way from us, isn't it? A long way from our context today. So what purpose have they for us today? Well, I think to use a phrase from the Apostle Paul that he was to use sometimes, much in every way. Because, friends, unless we ponder over the supreme barrier that existed between God and sinful human beings, we simply will not properly grasp or appreciate the magnitude of what God has done in Jesus. As we read these chapters and go, this is incredibly hard. God has to put in place incredibly detailed stuff just to dwell with his people. We won't actually appreciate how incredible it is what God has done in the person of Jesus. You see, the tabernacle, and later its permanent fixture, the temple, was only the shadow for the reality that was to come in the person of God's one and only Son. It was in the incarnation of God's Son that God came to dwell on earth in a way so much greater than ever before. With the tabernacle where the Israelites were camped, a cloud symbolising God's presence would descend over the tabernacle to indicate that he was there, it was always there, among his people until they moved. But in Jesus, God actually descended in human form to dwell on earth. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, verse 14, we read, These very familiar words. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now what's not necessarily obvious from the English is that the Greek word here for dwelling is the exact equivalent of the Hebrew word used for tabernacle. In using such language, John is actually recalling the tabernacle and its fulfilment in Jesus. He's actually saying that Jesus tabernacled among us on earth. You see, God's intention to make a permanent dwelling place among his people is fulfilled in the incarnation of his son. For as Jesus was later to say, if you've seen me, you've actually seen the Father. And if you say, well, how was God able to do this given the problems evident in the tabernacle with his holiness and our sinfulness? Then the answer is that the tabernacle priesthood also found its fulfilment in the high priesthood of Jesus. You see, Jesus is our high priest in heaven forever. And that brings me to the third reading that I had read today, Hebrews chapter 8. You see, at present, even today, a high priest is still necessary. God is holy and we still suffer, even though we're his, from the stain of sin. But whereas with the tabernacle the high priest made sacrifice for sin in the Holy of Holies once a year and that was a never-ending process, Jesus has made a once-only sacrifice of himself that covers sin for all time. As such, Hebrews 8 says, Now the main point of what we're saying is this, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. He serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord and not by a mere human being. You see, the true dwelling of God is in heaven and now we have a high priest who is there forever. At the right hand of God, of God's throne, not a mere human being stained by sin but one who is divine and human, pure and sinless. Jesus is our great high priest who represents us before God forever. So there's no more necessity for sacrifice. No special buildings. Church buildings are not tabernacles, temples or anything else. There's no special buildings. No sacred items. No priests other than Jesus. No priestly garments. Friends, we can't possibly appreciate the enormity of what God has done via the Son, tabernacled on earth unless we read these chapters of Exodus and others like them. In fact, if we were to read the first five books of um, the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, you'd find that the tabernacle is more chapters devoted to the tabernacle than virtually any other topic. It's only when we see what was required for God to dwell via a cloud that we can appreciate the massive privilege it is to know God simply by believing in Jesus. Now this week in our community group, community group that meets um, in my place, um, as we were pondering over the chapters on the law, one of our members reflected on The realization of how incredible it is that the God of the whole universe loves me. Yeah, the God of the whole universe somehow loves me and you. How do we know that? You see, we know that in the person of God's one and only Son. He tabernacled with us on earth, and now sits and represents us as, our, as high priest at the right hand of God in heaven himself. But you might ask, well, what about now? Where is God's dwelling with his people now? Jesus is in heaven. And that brings us, I think, to the third aspect of God's plan to dwell with his people, and that is through the presence of the Holy Spirit. It really is just an extension of Jesus' ministry until he returns again in triumph. Though physically in heaven, Jesus has sent his spirit to make God's dwelling in the closest way among his people. The New Testament speaks of this both collectively and individually. Collectively, God dwells with his people Through the Holy Spirit in the gathered church right here today. We meet here this morning as a gathering of God's people and he is amongst us through his spirit. In Ephesians 2, the apostle Paul says this, consequently you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation, the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple of the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. And then even more explicitly in 1 Corinthians 3, don't you know, that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. You see, when Jesus was on earth, his presence was limited to a physical location. One of the great benefits of his resurrection to the right hand of the Father is the release of the Spirit of God, so that God may dwell with his people wherever they are. So here at Golden Grove this morning, God dwells with his people. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are a holy temple or a tabernacle in the Lord where God lives by his Spirit. Let me ask you this morning, if you class yourself as a believer, why do you come to church? Well, people might give lots of reasons. A class of mine was asked this many years ago. I mean a class that I was a member of, so it's a long time ago. um, By one of my teachers. Asked the same question. One person said, oh, well, to hear from God's word. Sounds good, doesn't it? But the teacher scoffed and said, no, I can listen to heaps of sermons at home by myself. That was before he even had the internet. Others suggested fellowship, but sort of received the same sort of reply or scoff. You know, we can meet with people anytime. When someone got up the courage uh, to finally ask, what then? Our teacher simply said, To meet with God. The God who loves to dwell in the midst of his people. You see friends, when we meet here Sunday by Sunday we're actually declaring who we are and who God is. To meet together is to make a declaration that we belong to God's people. And the God we serve is a God who loves and longs to dwell with his people. He is not far off, as the famous Bette Midler song says, watching from a distance, but is right here, dwelling by his spirit in the midst of his people. We meet with God today in the faces of one another. And yes, because this is what we're doing, we do hear from God's word, we do respond in prayer. We do, thankfully now, sing in praise as well. And we do encourage each other in our walk with God to continue to live for him. You see, the reason for going to church is that it is simply a part of their very DNA as Christian believers. One of the most disappointing things about church life in Australia today is that the research tells us that many Christians regard coming to church once a month as regular attendance. In saying this, my aim is not to get at anybody here or not here. Rather, the reason it's disappointing is because it reflects a lack of understanding of who we are and who God is. And one of the most interesting things about this section of, of Exodus is if you went to chapter 31 you would see that it ends with a whole section on keeping the Sabbath or the Sabbaths on day and seven. The purpose is given in 31.13, so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. It was the day when God met his people, centred with the the tabernacle with sacrifice, worship and celebration. To break the Sabbath was serious, incredibly serious in the Old Testament because it became a sign of God's covenant with Israel. To break it was equivalent to saying you're not interested in knowing God, in meeting with him, the God who had saved you. And I think it's the same for us today, friends. To meet together Sunday by Sunday is to declare who we are and who God is and to continue to grow to know him by his spirit in the presence of his people. Believe it or not, what we have here today is a taste of the new creation, a little outpost of heaven The recreation of the garden, though in a far greater way. But there's still one more way the New Testament teaches us of God's dwelling with His people. And that is in the very body of every believer. To go back to the Gospel of John, in John chapter 2, Jesus goes to the temple and you remember what he does? It's like a marketplace, and he clears it out because that's the wrong way God meant to, for His um, temple to be used. It's meant to meet with God and pray. And Jesus spoke of His own body as the temple of God. After clearing the temple, Jesus asked. He was asked by the Jews by what authority he did this, and his reply is in verse nineteen: "Destroy this temple." And I will raise it again in three days. The Jews, of course, thought he was speaking about the literal temple and wondered how he could rebuild it in three days. It had taken them 40 years to do it. But John said, John notes that he spoke about his body. And once he was resurrected, the disciples understood this and knew what he meant. That Jesus' body was the temple and dwelling place of God I don't think it's hard to see. But just as after his resurrection the giving in the spirit creates a temple in the gathered church it also creates a temple in the body of every believer. In 1 Corinthians 6 while addressing the issue of sexual immorality Paul states this in verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own, you are bought with a price, therefore honour God with your bodies. The fact that God dwells in our bodies by his Spirit elevates the importance of what we do with our bodies to a new level. It reminds us that in resisting those desires and urges that rise up within us, We seek to honour rather than grieve the God who resides in us through his spirit. Let me conclude. Exodus 25 to 31 and also 35 to 40, which Luke will deal with in a couple of weeks, introduce the beginnings of what I call God's endgame. And God's endgame is quite straightforward. It's not rocket science. God's end game is to create a holy people for himself within among whom he in all his holiness can dwell forever. It began with the building of the tabernacle and the institution of the priesthood. It led to the incarnation of his son who tabernacled above us, uh, among us, and gave his life as a sacrifice for human sin. This great end game is a truly will be a truly wonderful conclusion when Jesus returns. For then we will not simply be forgiven through Christ's work and holy priesthood, we will be made perfect and live fully in the presence of the God of the universe. then the words of Revelation 21 verses 3 and 4 will come true. God's end game will be complete. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people And he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Each week as we meet, we experience just a small taste of that reality through the presence of God's spirit. And each time we resist the temptations to use our bodies in inappropriate ways, we testify that we belong to God and are bound to him. May that be always the way we think about our meetings here week by week. And may he strengthen us always to honour him with our bodies. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for this section of Exodus though we find it hard to read and so far out of our experience. But we thank you that way back then, You began a plan to bring us to where we are today, that we really live on the privileged side of the Lord Jesus Christ, who tabernacled among us. We thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege of you dwelling among us by your Spirit here today and in us, each one who belong to you. We pray that we may reflect on that each week we come and that when tempted to use our bodies in inappropriate ways we might remember that the Holy Spirit lives in us. Strengthen us we pray as we look forward to that wonderful day when Jesus will return and we will be perfected and live with you forever. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.